I realized that that version of Psalm 91 only had four verses, and we sang them all. This is Psalm 91. It is the holy and inspired Word of God. Let us listen with reverence, with awe. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Let's pray. Lord, our God, our great and mighty King, we rejoice at this time that we have to open your word. And we ask that you would let the light of your glory and your salvation fill our minds and captivate our thoughts. Lord, let your teaching now move our hearts to exalt, to praise, and to overflow with joy and splendor at your goodness, at your salvation, and at your power. In Christ Jesus, Father, we ask these things, and that this time of ours would be blessed. Amen. My grandfather, uh, as I remember him, uh, was a very benevolent, boisterous, cheerful, and joyful man. I remember as we would gather uh, around the table for Thanksgiving and Christmas meals with a gargantuous Armenian feast prepared before us, how he would lift his hands over the family and open our meal with a word of prayer, thanking God for his goodness to us and beseeching the triune God to continue to bless his family. When my thoughts turn to him, I instinctively recall and hear his voice lifting up a loud and joyful and love-filled Armenian greeting as we would show up at, his, at their home in Lakanyata to visit them. I also remember the countless hours that my grandfather would spend sitting at the piano playing old Armenian hymns uh, and singing, confessing his love and his trust in the Lord and how his voice would fill the entire home. I remember him to be a very cheerful, joyful, faithful, and benevolent man. And I like to think that this came from the Lord, that my grandfather was a man who truly loved the Lord and whose heart was overflowing because of the Lord's kindness and provision to him. Among the many sketches and the portraits that I've received of him, I'm told that Psalm 91 was his favorite psalm. I'm told that he used to rise early in the morning and recite this psalm to himself and meditate upon it, call it to memory, and hold fast to the Lord through it, finding hope and comfort through many of life's travails, sorrows, fears, and tribulations. 
And this makes sense given that he'd brought his whole family thousands of miles from a war-torn land, Syria, to the United States. He trusted the Lord as his refuge to protect his family. And in this psalm, I think it's appropriate to say he found expression of the way that God had provided for him and kept him and his family safe through such dangerous and perilous times. It's a beautiful psalm that profoundly declares the safety and the security from every threat that God provides to the one that holds fast to him in love. There is nothing that you can imagine that this psalm leaves out of the protection offered to the one who holds fast to God in this way. Well, my grandfather, Hagop, or in English, Jacob, a God-fearing, God-loving man, passed away from diabetes on April 1st, April Fool's, 2008. It was no joke. It was no farce. There was no gotcha. I was 10 years old, and I remember visiting him in the hospital, and I recall from that young age how even from that hospital bed, his joy, his love, and his benevolence, and his passion for life exuded from his lips as he visited with his young children, or young grandchildren, who had no idea that he was soon to die, but could clearly see that he was not well. I recall how pale his skin had become and how much weight he had lost in the final days and weeks of his life, his disheveled hair, and how weak his body had become from this disease. Well, my grandfather must not have really loved the Lord. He must not have really held fast to the Lord in love. He died of a disease, after all, of which this psalm promises deliverance and promises protection from. You could say the same for the men in the trenches of World War I, where this psalm earned renown as the psalm of the trenches. Men soon to die gruesome, horrific, painful deaths would confess this psalm and cling to it, finding comfort of the deliverance that it promises and the protection that it promises beneath the shadow of God's wings. Well, certainly... That is what many interpreters of this psalm would lead you to conclude. That this psalm requires one to really hold fast to the Lord and make the Lord their dwelling place if they want the protection, benefit, and deliverance that it offers. That there is a level of faith in God which would actually yield this level of protection to the fallen Christian. I say, on the contrary, this psalm is not really about us. It's about Christ and the eternal refuge that he has secured. It's about the one who really did cling to God in love and has secured an eternal dwelling place which suffers no threat from any force that this world or the devil or any of his servants can bring. And we'll look at that this evening in three ways. Failure, fulfillment, and future. Failure, fulfillment, and future. We're really asking two questions as we do so. What is this psalm about and what does it mean for us? So, failure. The fact of the matter is that when we approach this psalm, as I've already indicated, we're confronted with a very bleak reality. Here are some wonderfully beautiful promises of God's deliverance, His protection, but they're based upon a condition. And we see those conditions in verses 9 and 14. Verse 9, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. And verse 14, because He holds fast to me in love. 
So if you love the Lord enough, if you believe properly and cling to Him, if you exercise an appropriate amount of faith, then these promises of deliverance are yours. Now this is by itself pure law. Do this, get blessing. Don't do this, don't get blessing. Make the Lord your refuge and God will provide for you, protect you and show you his salvation and give you long life in the land. Now making God our refuge and holding fast to him in this way, I think we can appropriately appropriately term as faithful obedience to God. Faithful clinging to God. Now this, of course, goes, I think, back to the Mosaic Covenant. In Deuteronomy chapter 28 and Leviticus chapter 26, we see that this operating principle, uh, this, this uh, lifestyle where these stipulations, the, these, this kind of obedience would yield this level of promise, was what was characteristic of Israel's life in the promised land. Leviticus chapter 26 one says this, If you walk in all my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, Then I will give you peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before your sword. Deuteronomy 28 says nearly the exact same thing, and it goes on to express and explain how victory over their enemies was tied to their obedience, and conversely, how they would fall to their enemies for their disobedience. They would not have long life, a blessed life in the land that God had promised to them. In both of these passages, obedience, faithfulness to God, clinging fast to Him in love, is directly correlated to Israel's possession, protection, and fruitfulness in the land that they lived. And so we see that the psalmist confesses, we see this truth at least, that the psalmist confesses displayed in the history of Israel. Faithful obedience did earn protection, and faithful dis, or faithless disobedience did earn no protection. Over and over and over again, the Old Testament documents how Israel went after other gods, how the Lord was not their refuge, and what was the consequence? They were put to the sword. They fell to the arrow that flew by day. They fell to disease while Babylon laid siege to Jerusalem. They fell from the way, and they did not have long lives in the land. God did not show them his salvation. Conversely, when they went through short spurts where they were faithful to Yahweh, where they did cling to him, we see the opposite of their disobedience. So, for example, Hezekiah prostrated himself before the Lord as the armies of his enemies were were knocking at the gates of Jerusalem, threatening to invade. Hezekiah prostrates him before the Lord, and what happens? The messenger from Sennacherib goes to return to Sennacherib with his army, and then to come and return to Jerusalem to lay siege, and instead, thousands of their army die in the wilderness. Again, another example, when Josiah reinstitutes the law over Israel, instead of meeting with swift judgment, they're instead met with blessing for a short time in the land. Ultimately, however, in the grand scheme of things, in the history of Israel, we see that the people under the Mosaic Covenant were never, ever capable of meeting the conditions for God's protection in the land and the promises that this psalm affords. They don't ever receive long life in the land, and the ultimate consequence for their disobedience is that the curses of the covenant fall upon them and they are exiled from the land of promise. 
So this psalm should strike us as a bit odd, doesn't it? What is the psalmist doing here? Who, who could write such a psalm? Who could express God's protection over them in this way because they met the conditions? Well, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the, the Septuagint, ascribes this psalm to David. It, it tells us that it, it presumes David is the author. But we know for a fact that David was a deficient king. In fact, as a representative of his people, his actions had national consequence. In 1 Chronicles 21, chapter, uh, chapter 21, verse 6, we see that the, his failures, David's failures, led God to afflict Israel with the very same pestilence that's spoken of in our passage today, and 70,000 people die. Talk about long life in the land. Say we take Moses as the author, which I believe is a plausible suggestion given its placement next to Psalm 90, which was authored by Moses, both of which carry along many of the same themes and deal with the same problems. Well, the problem with Moses being the author is that the final promise, with long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation, is a promise which is intimately connected with life in the land that God had promised, with the land flowing with milk and honey. And Moses was barred from entering that land, wasn't he? He never entered it. The reality is, then, that we can't think of anyone in Old Testament history that has met the condition and earned the fullness of what this psalm promises. Again, look at the ledger of Israel's history. The balance was negative, the verdict was given, and they were uprooted from the land for their failure. There was no glory for the people in Israel, or their life there. So we see again and again and again nothing but failure to meet this condition. So whatever the psalmist here is doing has to be anticipatory. It has to be looking forward because they never earned it. It's not that he can say that I've met this condition, but he can say someone else must. It's a standard that he confesses in faith, acknowledging, actually, I believe that he cannot meet the condition required to earn this level of protection and the promised safety. So the question then immediately arises for us. Who does make God their refuge and cling to him in this way such that they offer up the fulfillment of the conditions required? Well, Christ does. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who is perfectly obedient to the will of his Father and fulfills the condition that this psalm states. Jesus does not come to do his own will, but as he states in John chapter 6, verse 38, he came to do the will of him who sent him, the Father. And as such, he carries that work out perfectly. And so he confesses in his prayer to the Father in John chapter, 4, John chapter 17, verse 4, as he clings to his Father in prayer. I have glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work that you gave me to do. I was obedient. I held fast to what you ordained. So he came on a mission and he accomplishes it perfectly by clinging to the Father's will. In fact, at no point in the life of Jesus do we find that he departs from the mission that he came to do. And we think, for instance, on that experience for him. We think on the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26, how he pleads with the Father, My Father, if it be possible, 
Let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And a second time he approaches the Father in prayer. My Father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. See our Savior's exceptional commitment to the Father's will. See the way that our Savior trusts in his Father's plan. See the way our Savior takes refuge in his prayer to his Father, clinging to him, holding fast to him, and obeying what the Father has called him to do. And of course, this is not the only example that we have of Christ's commitment to do only that which pertained to his Father's will for him. There is another, and I think more poignant or pronounced example that the New Testament gives us of Jesus' obedience and commitment to his mission, and therefore his obedience to the Father. We find this in the wilderness temptation of Jesus recorded in Matthew 4 and Luke chapter 4. There the devil brings Jesus to the top of the temple and he says this to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And so Jesus responds to this saying, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 7.12 and from Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 16 here. In Isaiah 7.12, the faithless King Ahaz feigns a faithful answer, pretending to trust the Lord when instead Ahaz had put his trust in the chariots coming from Egypt to deliver him from Assyria. In regard to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, it's a reference to Meribah, where the people questioned whether or not the Lord was with them and why they ever came out of Egypt in the first place. They grumbled and they complained. And in both instances, neither Ahaz nor the Israelites at Meribah were trusting the Lord uh, or his plan or his ability to deliver them and to provide for them and to protect them. Nor were they trusting what he was leading them toward or calling them to do as their actions indicate. Instead, they were committed to something else other than what God was calling them to do. They are committed to their own way, to their own plans, to their own wisdom. And so it's interesting then that Satan applies to Christ the fulfillment of the conditions that Psalm 91 states. He acknowledges that Christ is the one who has made the Lord his dwelling place and refuge, and the one who would be protected by angelic forces. But... Because Christ holds fast to God in love, because he has made the Lord his refuge, he will not question or depart from the mission that he has been called to accomplish. To cast himself off of the temple then would lead Jesus to not only depart from that which God had called him to do, but it would also put God's plan to the test. It would be to distrust God's ability to provide for him, to deliver him, And it would also be to distrust what God was leading him toward. Instead, Christ remains unchanged in his trust, his faith, and his commitment to the mission, uh, to his mission, to fulfill his duty and to cling to the Lord in love and in obedience. So Christ is the fulfillment of Psalm 91's conditions. He has made the Lord his dwelling place and he has held fast to him in love. And so having thus considered how Israel failed and how Christ fulfilled the condition, we'll move now to consider the future. 
Now, at this point, you might be asking the question, well, wait a second, Brennan, what about the protection promised for meeting this condition? Was Christ not whipped, humiliated by his enemies, made to carry a cross that he would be hung upon, and then lifted up on a cross to suffer a gruesome death, and then suffer on top of that the judgment for the sins of his people? What happened to long life and protection and God's salvation? What, would we not consider the, the, the evil that he, what he suffered to be evil that befell him? Well, I want to address this on the first level from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. There it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned obedience through what he suffered. So an essential piece of what, of what it meant for Christ to hold fast to God in love was his suffering. There was no obedience without Christ's suffering. And it was through that suffering that we see him obey and we see him in his prayers cry out to God who was able to save him from death. In fact, it was actually through his suffering that Jesus would ultimately fulfill the great, the great promise begun in chap, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and alluded to here in Psalm 91. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the adder being a young serpent. And the serpent you will trample underfoot. The seed of Eve would crush the head of the serpent. It would cut the head off the snake. He would tread on and trample under his heel the head of the serpent, through what he suffered. But he still suffered. So what do we make of that? This psalm promises that just as a mighty fortress shields its inhabitants from an invading army, so too when God is our refuge, we will find protection under his wings. That the canopy of God's presence will overshadow us, that no arrow from an unseen location will ever come near to us, that every enemy will fall by our side, that we will never even strike a foot on a stone and fall. In some ways, it's painting a picture of what Eden should have been like. This psalm promises that when we cry out to him, he would answer us. But Jesus cried out in utter abandonment the words that we all know. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I will deliver him. I will protect him. When he calls me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. Where is that for the Christ on the cross? What are we supposed to do with that? Is the promise of protection empty? The answer to that is, of course, no. But I think that we have to feel that dilemma of this psalm. There's been a lot of damage done in the house of the morning and by the hospital bed if we don't feel the weight of the dilemma that this psalm presents to an improper interpretation.
Let's put it this way. What is the point of clinging to God in love if every molecule in your body is passing away and decaying regardless of what you do? No matter how much you cling to God in love, at some point, everybody, everybody's body goes to the same place. So why cling to God in love for such a temporary life and such a temporary kingdom? Why not eat, drink, and be merry? It's as if, by the way, Psalm 90 prepares us for the observation that we all go to the grave. We all die. The years of our life are 70 or maybe 80. We all pass away and return to the dust. So what's the point of a long life and all of this protection? This line of questioning really highlights for us what I believe is the importance of typology. Typology being uh, the foreshadowing of the, the way that Israel and their possession in the land foreshadowed something better that was to come. The promise of Israel's possession of the promised land was always meant to give a foretaste, give a picture of something so much better to come. And so in the same way, their shortcomings and their inabilities to meet the conditions that were required to earn this level of protection were also, at the same time, always intended to show them their need for one who would come and do what they could not and earn that much, much better life and that much, much better kingdom for them. And that's what Christ has done. He has secured an eternal dwelling place with God. So the land and the promise is forward-looking to a future kingdom where God's protection is indeed offered from every foe, not just the material ones that we can conceive of, but from death itself. It's a future kingdom in which we will have not just long life, but eternal life. And the beautiful thing then is, dear people of God, that Christ, the one who met the condition for us, is already in that place. And so in John chapter 14, verse 3, he promises this, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And it's through this lens that we see what this psalm is about and what it means for us. Christ earned life in the land. He has gone to it, and he will come again to take us to himself there. So we ask, what kind of protection, then, does this psalm promise and afford us to understand? Well, certainly it paints a picture of life in the promised land, doesn't it? A picture in which all of these promises of deliverance are true and unchallenged forever. There, no trap will ever ensnare us and no deadly destruction strike us. There, God's wings will shade us from the heat of the sun. We will literally dwell beneath the canopy of God's presence with him in intimate union. There, his trustworthy faithfulness will protect us from every danger. There, no terror of the night will afflict us and no robber on the perilous road meet us. No arrow that flies from afar in battle will strike us. No disease or destruction will ever come near to us. There will be no war, so we shall not fall to the sword of our enemies, but we will instead witness the judgment upon the wicked. There, because Christ has made the Lord his refuge, no evil or judgment will come near to us. 
There, we will not have long life that passes as the cells of our bodies fade, but we will experience eternal life, having tasted the fullness of God's salvation. And that's all a very beautiful picture, isn't it? And it should create in us an intense longing for that eternal home. But what about right now? Well, because Christ has offered up perfect obedience, because God is our refuge in Christ, however insufficient our faith in the present, it's proper to recognize that this psalm does teach about the promise and the protection of God in the present. It is not that we will never suffer disease or famine or fall to the sword. It is not that we won't ever stub our toe and fall. I do that weekly. I don't know about you. It is not that our loved ones won't get diabetes. It is not that our loved ones won't get cancer or Parkinson's or whatever other maladies this flesh suffers of flesh or mind. It is rather that no such thing will ever come against us that is not a part of God's plan for us as we travel from the wilderness where we are as exiles outside of the land of promise to that land flowing with milk and with honey. So the kind of refuge and protection we have in him now is the kind which ensures us that we are already presently delivered from all the force of the dangers presented in this psalm that challenge our possession and our tenure of life in the land that God has given to us. Suffering may visit us. Much more, it will visit us. Tragedy will strike. Your enemies will thrive. Disease will visit you. Death will take your loved ones. Ultimately, death will take you. But it is perfectly allowed within the bounds of the promise that is offered to the people of God in Christ Jesus, who has made the Lord his refuge. And so it does not threaten your possession of long life in the promised land. The refuge and protection of that good and, present, good and blessed country, then, is pouring out from that kingdom into the present retroactively so that those for whom life in that land is one will surely experience that life. Nothing can threaten it. No famine, no disease, no death, a thousand enemies standing at your side, pestilence, judgment. Each and every one of them loses their force for the children of God in the present, so that they can be confident that whatever they endure in the present, they will persevere until the end. I painted a portrait for you earlier of my grandfather. I said that he was a kind, benevolent, and joyful man. As I've gotten older, many of the sketches that I've received of him and been told over the years remind me that he was also a deeply sinful man like any other. So I wonder, for a time, what was he hoping for in this psalm? What was it in this psalm that my grandfather found so comforting as one such sinful man? Well, I believe that in his bones he felt his brokenness and that this psalm reminded him of the home for which he longed, his eternal home. In this psalm, he found expression of what he longed for and valued most, 
refuge and safety under the wings of God in the present. He found that already he was experiencing that protection despite the tragedies that visited him. He found that he was already experiencing that protection despite the insufficiency of his own obedience. He found that in Christ, God was his refuge and would lead him home. For him, it was a profound expression that God was his fortress who so protected him now that he would surely enter the rest of the kingdom for which no force of this world can pierce and threaten and which God's grace, as John Newton's song so richly exclaims, would lead him home. It was a hope that in Christ he held fast himself to God in love. It was a hope for the kingdom in which God would, as the book of Revelation declares, wipe away every tear from his eyes when death would be no more, when there would be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain. And so my hope then this evening is that we might take this psalm upon our lips in Christ Jesus too and confess boldly, however insufficient our faith may be, in trials, in doubt, and in temptation, that God is our refuge and our fortress, our God in whom we trust, that we might more firmly trust him to preserve us and protect us in the present and all the more cry out ourselves to him. You are my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And that we might hope more firmly that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love and the protection of God that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Lord our God, however, howsoever weak our faith may be, we trust at this time that Christ's obedience was enough to earn for us the eternal home in your heavenly court the heavenly Jerusalem. Lord, our souls long, yes, they even faint, to see those sacred courts of the Lord. And we rejoice that today, not once but twice, we have a foretaste of that heavenly court with the innumerable angels in festal gathering. So we ask, Lord, that when sorrows and afflictions like sea billows roll, you would help us to trust your promise that one day soon you will come riding on the clouds to take us home to that place where our refuge is eternally secure. In Christ's name, by the help of his spirit, we ask these things. Amen. And we'll turn together singing, this time, number 433, Amazing Grace, and we'll sing all the verses standing together. Number 433, Amazing Grace.
I really think we should do verse 6. When we look out now and receive God's blessing from Hebrews chapter 13. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Christ Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.